Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. For more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com. But first, we have on the show a TV writer-producer whose credits include The Andy Dick Show and ABC's Family Tools. His current project is the new NBC comedy Undateable, about a group of quirky friends who all have qualities that make them undateable. He's also a former anteater, uh, UC Irvine alum, that is, and a Southern California kid <laughs> from Huntington Beach, and he's on the show today. Thanks for coming on, Mr. Craig Doyle. Hey, thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having me, buddy. appreciate it. Uh, I appreciate your time, man. Absolutely, absolutely. First off, we'd like to get to know you a little. <laughs> uh, can you talk a little bit about your background? I know you went to UCI and studied English mm-hmm. a bit, and, uh, you know, so can you talk a little bit about your background, and, and how was it that you decided to make a career out of screenwriting? And how did you get your first start in the business? All that stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's I you know, everybody has their own way through, and, and mine's just as kind of weird, I guess, as anyone else's. Uh, uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I come from Huntington Beach in Orange County, and, and uh, it's kind of a, you know, it's a um, uh, beach punk rock skateboard kind of community full of, you know, knuckleheads and, <laughs> you know, surfing and surfing and skateboarding and going to see punk rock shows. And I kind of come from that culture and that, and no one in my family had anything to do with, you know, uh, television or features or any kind of thing in the entertainment business. In fact, my dad was a major league baseball player. He played for the Braves and the angels back in the late sixties and then uh, was traded to the California angels in like 1969, 70 and brought our family out here. And then he hurt himself and kind of that, uh, transplanted us out there. So it's kind of like a Midwest. I'm like the first generation Californian in my immediate family. And my brother and sister and mom and dad are all like Ohio kind of Midwestern things. So that kind of has been uh, a funny thing. So it's like, I have nobody in this kind of business, but as I, you know, grew up, it was, you know, you come home and watch. I think I also grew up, I'm 43 now. I grew up in kind of the glory days of TBS and HBO and mm-hmm. that 70s and 50s cable where you came home from school and it's just like on a loop you were watching these you know you're watching stripes and meatballs and and everything great over and over again and you know you didn't have you had a VCR maybe but it was you just kind of were drilled into comedy so you kind of you know you're watching Jerk and you're watching uh, Caddyshack and all these great movies and and um, it just kind of hit a bug in me I was always you know kind of an idiot in class and <laughs> uh, you know. <laughs> Uh, I was always a goofball and but kind of a good student and kind of a jock, so I kind of didn't fit into anyone's you know pocket, so to speak. But um, yeah, so I, I just was really into it. So like when I was 18, I started doing stand-up, and uh, in Orange County, this was the end of the 80s, where you know there was a million television shows that were featuring stand-ups. It was like really you know oversaturated. There was you know Evening at the Improv and mm-hmm. Downtown Comedy, blah blah blah, or whatever. So I was kind of in the scene as this 18-year-old kid, and there were rooms everywhere. There were rooms, uh, there were clubs. There was a place in Newport called The Last Stop, and Sam Kinison would play there. And it was like there was all these opportunities to do it. So I kind of got into the world of stand-up, and I did that for a while as I was going to school at UC Irvine. And it was really difficult. So it was like, you know, you kind of, you know, I'm doing Scooby-Doo jokes. I have no point of view. I'm doing kind of just, I'm an 18-year-old kid. I have no life. It's not like I'm saying, oh, you know, my wife or like a Louis C.K. thing. where you have like some kind of great insight based on, a you know, uh, life experience. I'm being just an idiot up there. And, <laughs> and But it kind of in a certain way, like in the Gladwell way, it was like my 10,000 hours of, of being in front of people and, and kind of beating that fear of, of uh, failure kind of in a way, not fear of failure, but fear of like, you know, of getting up on stage and being in front of people and stuff like that, which, you know, later on 
in a writer's room or in, you know, in the comedy world actually comes in quite helpful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, there's nothing that they could do to me that I haven't had done to me, you know, at the chuckle hut in some shithead town. So, <laughs> you know, so, um, uh, I, uh, yeah, so I started doing that and, and that was like the nineties. And then I, I started getting into improvisational theater, kind of like, you know, what UCB is today or, um, uh, but Second City and those kind of things are groundlings. I, I was doing things like that. There was an improv. The stand-up kind of world kind of imploded on itself. I kind of got burned out on it um, because it was, it was falling apart. And uh, the alternative comedy scene was coming up, which was the uh, uh, kind of in the shadow of shows like Mr. Show with Bob Odenkirk and, and Dave Cross. And there was this and Janine Garofalo. And there was this great alternative comedy scene that started kind of coming up in the 90s that uh, I started to kind of get in the periphery of. And from there, that's where Andy Dick was. That's where, um, you know, you started seeing all these really, you know, the Ben Stiller show type people from the 90s were hanging out and watching these people do different things as opposed to the classic, you know, brick wall stand-up comedy. This guy, you know, their guys were out there doing kind of meta things, weird sketches and stuff like that, which kind of caught my attention. So mm -hmm. uh, a couple of buddies and I, um, it's a long story, so I can Apologize, but uh, a couple good. buddy, a couple buddies and I, we kind of had our improv group. We had our sketch group, and a couple of us, you know, we're doing improv bits, and we're doing, um, uh, you know, alternative comedy bits and things like that. And we just kind of got in with a group of, you know, of friends, and 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 then you start, you know, someone gets a job on a show, and then they're looking. You start helping out your friends, and it be, you you create a community, and that community becomes. Uh, you know, your peers and the peers help the peers and you, you know, it, it, through your interviews with people on, um, you know, screenwriters and, and uh, um, different television producers and whatever, it's like, it's probably a common theme is that you kind of, it's such a hard thing to do to get up on your feet to be a professional writer. It takes a lot of help and that is your peer group. So I kind of had that in this comedy world and still do a lot of my, my friends and so I ended up getting, uh, I ended up writing a screenplay and one of my friends that I was from comedy worked as an executive, uh, worked for an executive, uh, at a, pro or a producer actually, uh, at Fox. And I wrote a script and he helped get it into the hands of uh, some people and it caught fire. And it was a, it was a script called Martin Guthrie. It was about like a crazy extra, you know, background actor that kind of went crazy. And, uh, it was based on, you know, my world of being, you know, a pseudo actor and kind of doing little things here and there where you see these kind of obsessive actors, you know, background actors who, you know, a lot of them are great people. And then there's some people that are really off their rocker. And that was kind of what this script was about. And it kind of caught fire. And um, one of the, one of the people that got it was Greg Silverman, who's now, you know, president of the world at Warner brothers, who, who became a really good ally and friend. And, uh, he brought it around and got me an agent, and and that's how I met Adam Colbrenner and Deron Silverman, and we started, you know, doing that thing. So kind of, you know, from stand up, it kind of all evolved generally to writing this one script that kind of got me in the door, and then from that, I Andy Dick show came around, and and I was able to, you know, hop on that from knowing Andy and people associated with the show, and hopped on that, and then I was like, I was doing that as a TV thing. Uh, you know, doing an MTV kind of subversive kind of show here, but also going off and doing, you know, getting into the feature world, doing uh, comedies, like doing rewrites for comedies and, and things like that. So that's kind of the, that's a, that's a basic thumbnail of like 15 years of kind of right. how it kind of started. And then, you know, since then it's been, uh, you know, a different, a different story, but it's, uh, it, it came from a performance background 
um, not being that good at it, I guess decent <laughs> at it. But, you know, it's like when you hear Judd, Judd Apatow talking, I'm nowhere near equating myself with Judd, but it's like he was a stand-up with Sandler and all those crazy funny guys that he's with, and you realize I'm never going to be as good as those guys, but I understand how to use them, and I know how to tell stories with them and maybe do the thing that they can't, you know, that, that, uh, to help them. And that's kind of uh, a version of what I did, and, and, and it kind of translated, and, and then you get, you know, lucky upon lucky upon lucky and um, start making a living. So um hope that's not too long of an answer, but that, that's kind of how it went. No, I mean, but, it's uh, great. It's always great because, you know, like you said, there's there's no one way into the business, and it's always great to hear other sure. stories, how they did it, obviously. Yours coming from a performance background, some coming from being a showrunner's assistant or a writer's yeah, RPA or something. Absolutely. Others from a, right. a a fellowship or something. So it's all they all come from different backgrounds. So it's always great to hear other stories, especially a unique one, a performance background uh, like yours, which is always kind of yeah. Well, it is, and it's it's a funny thing because everybody you know like that you know when you're talking about those different ways in you know if you're doing a fellowship kind of a thing maybe that's an academic thing and you're doing mm -hmm. stuff where you're really analyzing things you might be you know at USC film school or you're a you know a, you know film program somewhere and you're really learning those kind of things that way which is awesome and it's a great way to do it. Then there's that. I was a writer's at a PA and I was getting, you know, I was doing night drops for tapes for editors or whatever. And I worked my way into the writer's room and you learn that stuff. You learn a show and you learn, you know, you learn the writer's room and you get promoted up to the show and then you get a script and then you blah, blah, blah. That's an amazing way you learn all different ways. And kind of for me, the performance way, you know, uh, got me, it, it was another way of kind of getting in through performers and actors and actor writers, uh, that way. So you're right. It just feels like there's always millions of different ways. All of them come out of the common denominator of um, an education by fire, you know, <laughs> whether it's you're in a classroom breaking down, you know, the seventh seal 50,000 times, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, to the point of wanting to blow your brains out to having to, you know, uh, the doldrums of, of uh, being a, a PA on, on a, you know, working way up through a really, you know, a grueling television show to, you know, performing, doing clubs and, having to do uh, get in front of a bunch of people that don't really want to laugh and having to do those things. They're all kind of trial by fire in a certain way. And they force kind of maybe a resilience in you that you're going to need as a writer <laughs> as you kind of, you know, get lucky enough to make a living at it and have to kind of go out with your hat in your hand and, and actually make uh, people pay you to do it. Right. <laughs> you better be ready to get your ass kicked. So, um, uh, but anyway, but uh, yeah, for sure. It's always a weird way. Everyone's got a weird way. Yeah. So. Um, I, you had mentioned that the script that you had written, the screenplay you had written, that sort of got caught fire uh -huh. and, and got sent around. Was that the first screenplay you ever wrote? And if not, what was the first screenplay you ever wrote? It was the first screenplay oh, I ever really? wrote. Okay, it's so really crazy. Yeah. I, it took me a while to do it. I mean, I had written tons of sketches. Like, I mean, it wasn't like I'd never written anything before. And it was like I was a wonderkin and like popped up and wrote this thing that people liked. It was, mm -hmm. I had done, I mean, you know, millions of, sketches and stand-up material and things like that it's it, it became i had written actually also written spec television shows like oh. files episodes or a friends episode so it's like i was i was aware of you know at least like formatting and things like that but when i wanted to sit down and actually write a feature screenplay that was the first time i was like all right i'm gonna get from point a it's like i'm gonna run a marathon you know mm -hmm. that was it it was like i had run these little tiny 5ks <laughs> and all that stuff I really have this idea. I was working in an advertising agency as a day job. I was an assistant at an ad agency. Mm -hmm. And I realized, like, you know, as a lot of people who are writers who want to make a transition, you have a day job, 
you know, you're working, you know, wherever you're working or you're working in the business and it just maybe not in the creative part of it or writing, you know, in the writing field. And you kind of like got to this point where I was like, oh, I got to write something. And so I went to, you, you know, UCLA out here has their, um, has their, uh, program, like their night school kind of program. So I was like, mm-hmm. you know, what? I'm going to take a class that every Wednesday night I had to actually have 10 pages written. That was it. So it like forces you. So like I gave myself homework. It was like, you know, it was like, oh, I'm going to make sure that I put, I put myself on a timer in a certain way because the procrastination monster is pretty rough. And then when you're right. working a long 40-hour-plus-week job, the last thing you want to do is go and put your head into a script that's having trouble. It's like, ugh, you know, <laughs> like you don't want to do that. So kind of forcing myself to have to do it uh, got me out of my head, and I wrote this – I wrote half of it. Uh, with this class, like kind of, you know, getting it. And then I wrote the other half, I got laid off and then I wrote the other half mm-hmm. and by myself and then uh, went back. And it was, it wasn't like, it was not to like learn about screenwriting as much. And it was great. I mean, I learned a lot from the instructors there and the other people. It was kind of like forcing a community on myself where I had to be accountable to my, to what I wanted to do, right. which was, I wanted to finish the screenplay. And you, and you, you know, you've probably talked to a million guys and a million people and everybody talks and no one does it. <laughs> you know, oh, I gotta write a sketch pad. Oh, I'm gonna write a spec. I'm gonna write. It. No one does. It. Right. Uh, the, the real people who do it, or there's those people who are so prolific and they're all crap. <laughs> there tends to be that somewhere in the middle. All they do is write. Like, oh shit, dude, man, have a life. You know, no wonder. You know, it's a uh, paid by numbers. So, um, but uh, so it forced me to kind of like do it. But it was my first thing that I had done, and uh, then I had had taken it, uh, you know, with my friend and had, and got it out there. And then of course uh, it got around and people were. I, but it's been about a year and a half doing it, like, you know, at Hunt and Peck here and there, mm-hmm. uh, getting at it in, in segments and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, that was kind of my first, like, feature that I had done. So, you know, it's it kind of crazy how, how that was the one that people right. dug. So, yeah, I mean, it, that's that's a very unusual circumstance. But then, again, you had said you had written TV specs and you had written a, a lot of sketches and stuff. So, uh, it wasn't purely a, a first uh, yeah, it wasn't like I just yeah, it wasn't like I just picked up Wild Draft off at the Apple Store and was like, I'm gonna write a movie and just right. went, you know, fade in and started doing it. And it right. Got me at CAA. It was kind of like right. there was definitely you know there was definitely some uh, some uh, some training that kind of went in you know yeah. maybe unconventional training but yeah but it was it but it still was it was but it followed kind of like I look back at it now and it's definitely I haven't read it in years but um, I remember looking at it a few. Uh, years back and kind of going, Oh, that was pretty good. You know, you kind of right. expect to kind of cringe. It's like looking at like junior high prom photos or something, or, you know, junior high dance photos. Like, Oh shit, here comes the eighties bangs. And you're like, <laughs> Hey, it didn't look too bad. And it's like, right. some things are good. Some things you go, wow, man, I really should have been there. That was really, right. that was really amateur. That was me doing that kind of a thing. So I look back at it and I definitely see, you know, the noviceness of it and, and things like that. But there was some stuff in there that I was, you know, you kind of, you're expecting the worst and, you know, maybe it's kind of okay. And that okay is a huge victory. Yeah. No, <laughs> absolutely. Like, oh, I thought it was going to shit. Yeah. Yeah. Not too many, not too many members only jackets in that script, right? Yeah, exactly. Nice. Uh, uh, so totally. <laughs> um, and talk um, about procrastination other than taking, uh, night classes at UCLA <laughs> in screenwriting. What, what kind of things do you do to avoid procrastination? Um, I'm obviously you're in a writer's room, so it's, it's substantially more difficult to procrastinate, but 
you know, in your own stuff, on your own things outside of that, if you still do any writing outside of? Oh, man, it's so tough. I mean, it is tough because, you know, it's like, uh, you know, writing, when you're writing on your own or you're writing, uh, you know, the energy of the room is a lot of fun. And what's funny is that most of the writers in the room want to procrastinate. I mean, it's funny if, if they, everybody, we screw around, especially in a comedy writer's room, you know, it's the... Probably what people think of, you know, people throwing pencils at the ceiling and doing stuff like that. It's like, you know, on the show that I'm on now, Undateable, with Bill Lawrence is just a big goofball and a great guy. We had a really fun room. Some guys are constantly doing room bits and they're, you know, goofing off and doing things or we're watching, you know, YouTube videos and, and <laughs> finding certain things or, you know, crank calling certain people or going to play basketball or whatever. So even when you're on a professional clock, the writers will find a way. They'll find a way to procrastinate. So it's it's a it's a and it's funny because I, I have a weird kind of take on it and maybe it's not that weird but um, I think procrastination a lot of times you are working mm-hmm. in a certain way like there's it's just the back channels it's the back room it's like that kind of thing because there's times where I do stuff and I'm like I really didn't get any good pages out today but then I'll go back and I'll look and I'll have had five ideas that and allow me to write fifteen the next day. So it's kind of a weird thing. I think as long as you're kind of still swimming towards the dock and there's progress, sometimes you're going to make big progress and big leaps. And other times you're going to be like, eh, I felt like treading water for a while and playing a, you know, Xbox game for, you know, some call of duty or whatever. Right. So, um, I don't win the war a whole lot against procrastination. I definitely goof around a lot. I play guitar. I play, you know, I have kids and they come home from school and, they they're a lot more fun than you know trying to find a, a perfect dick joke for some <laughs> kind of thing and things like that. So so but you know I I do think a lot of times you find your process of what you're what you're you know what gets you done. And for me it's like uh, some people I know that they'll do like I'll do so many pages or you know off their, they'll do an outline and then off their outline they'll be like all right I'm going to do these scenes and then I go back the next day go back and look what I did in those scenes. And then, you know, continue and then go back to what I did the day before and kind of continue. So it's like a little, like, one step back, two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward. I can't do that because I'll never get out of the first part of it. I'll just constantly keep doing it. And so I've found, like, the one way to beat procrastination for me is because sometimes procrastination is like fear of failure. Like, oh, this is going to be the one that they they think suck Mm -hmm. is, is is to get through the draft. Just get through it. You know, they call it spit draft or whatever. You know, garbage draft, vomit draft, whatever. I that works for me. I get get it down. The word I would never show anyone my garbage. I would never. I would show my children. It's the kind of thing that like when I die, I'm gonna have my my hard drives melted. So like in case <laughs> there's like letters, like JD Salinger's letters or some kind of like thing that they do not find my shit draft because they're so bad. Like it's 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 criminal. It's like. If they get paid to do this, what the fuck? So it, it, they're bad. But what they are is an execution of the story with the basic shit, the basic things you need to get from A to B, at the, you know, A to Z at the end. And then I go back, and the rewriting is the writing for me. It's going back and going, oh, see, I did this, and blah, blah, blah. There's a couple of happy accidents in there, but that's where the real stuff comes. Because for me, at the end of the story, a lot of times you go back and realize what you need at the beginning of the story. And so for me, if I go to the, those first few scenes, they're perfect because I rewrote them 15 times in the first two weeks. Um, they might completely 100% change based on the discoveries in the end. So mm-hmm. why spend a whole lot of time on getting Just get the frame of the house up there. Then start putting stuff in, and then you'll start seeing things that you might need there. And uh, so that 
that helps procrastination in a weird, odd way with me. Is just the fact that um, get it, it makes it less of a daunting task. You kind of see this big thing of like, wow, I got to write Jaws. It's like, no, just write the next scene. Just get through it. Just get through a pass. Then do another pass. Then do another pass. Like, trust the process. It makes it less of a daunting kind of thing for me, and it allows me to kind of face that fear that procrastination feeds uh, feeds off of, and then I start getting stuff done. So I hope that's a decent answer. But it's it's a um, yeah, but it's 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 a tough one. <laughs> Procrastination's tough. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's like taking an MCAT every day. You know, you get in front of it, you're like, oh, God, my head hurts. So no one wants to kind of face that and the voices in your head of how this isn't going to work. And this is the one that's going to be a failure. And this is the one where I'm a fraud and all that stuff comes in. And the first thing you want to do is bail. And all right, I'm going to watch, uh, you know, kitten videos on on, on YouTube. So there are some pretty good kittens. To avoid sweet kitten videos for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I mean, and I know for me, particularly when I started uh, writing that that procrastination was always that worry. It's like if I really enjoyed writing, if I was really going to be good at writing professional writing, then uh-huh. why this procrastination is a real problem. It, it must mean that I might not be designed for this. And then I remember re- I think it was Adventures in the Screen Trade by William Goldman, where he says he'll yeah, do right. anything to avoid writing. Yeah, um, absolutely. And if, if if a writer of his caliber also has the same problems, oh, then, may, then maybe it's pretty common. Um, Buddy, it, it's everybody. I mean, yeah. there's people who are, I think, I mean, and, and I, I can only speak for my experience, obviously, that, but it's like in a comedy room, mm-hmm. most of the people who are, you know, comedy writers are kind of goofballs as it is. They all were, <laughs> you know, class clownish kind of people. Right. Those are people that aren't sitting there going, let's go study right now. They're not, right. they never were. So I think as a, you know, in, in my field, you know, the field that I've been lucky enough to be in, I doubt, you know, it's, it's, it's really common. Um, you know, and then also, you know, you start, when you start making a living, it's, it just becomes an economic thing. It's like no different from, you know, if you go to work, if, if you were trying to write at night, but you go to work and you work at a, you know, at a company and you have to have a report done by the end of the day, you know, you're going, there's going to be punitive, <laughs> there's going to be a punitive action against you if it doesn't get done. And get it done and you're at work, you don't want to do that report. You want to do that Excel spreadsheet. So, um, but that deadline ends up help being a helpful kind of a thing. It's, it, you know, when you start making a living doing it, you're like, well, shit, they're going to pass if they don't, you know, I'm not going to get paid if I don't finish this. <laughs> so that could, that could be a definite motivator too. But, you know, when you're working on your own, if, you know, if you're, you're trying to get into the game or you're writing a spec on the side or you're working on a show, but you're trying to write a feature or you're working on a feature, but you're trying to write a pilot, whatever it is, anything that you're doing on your own, you're going to be facing that kind of a thing. It's completely normal. It's, uh, you know, I read that book, that the war of art. Mm-hmm. And you know, that guy calls it, uh, that, uh, Stephen Pressfield, he writes, uh, that I call the resistance, but the resistance doesn't want you to succeed right. and makes it sound like this total war. Like that's like, you know, there's this, you know, it's like this total underground, uh, you know, uh, militia that's after you in a certain way. But it's, uh, uh, when you read about that kind of stuff, it is you're you're it's fear. It's it's based on the fact that you're gonna you're gonna screw it up. Someone's <laughs> not gonna like it, and it comes down to ego and really that kind of a thing. And it's like you just got to get over that. And right. maybe they won't. And what's the worst that's gonna happen? You know, they're not gonna come and take your kids. So you gotta so you gotta just get through. But it makes it that you know you can have all that rational thought all day long, but it's irrational thought when you know when it comes to that stuff it's in that wins out you know mm-hmm. um but uh yeah it's tough procrastination's a bitch so. <laughs> um, 
Now, this is a softball question, if there ever was one. Um, not really, <laughs> but what makes good comedy? Uh, you know what? I think it's a lot, for me, it's truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's truth, you know what I mean? Uh, sorry, were you done with the question? I, yeah, I, that's, I, I, yeah, that's I, it. Uh, I think it's, I think it's truth. I think that the good comedy has truth in it. You know, it's like if, uh, you know, I look back at, um, you know, uh, if it's stripes, for instance, I have the stripes poster on my wall. It's like, what makes me love about that is that John Winger, the Bill Murray's character is how we feel about, most people feel about the military. It's a bunch of people telling you to do irrational things and push-ups and all this other stuff and breaking, you know, building the perfect soldier. And you have the guy that kind of represents all of us that just wants to eat pizza and listen, listen to Tito Puente albums, who's doing it. And it's an iconoclast in this world, but your, 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 your portal to the story is his truth. So, you know, if you're watching a show like the, you know, the, the British office or the American office, Michael Scott or, you know, uh, David Brent, the Gervais version, it's, there's a truth to it. And that's the thing that I think that everyone finds funny. I mean, you could, there's movies like airplane where, or scary movie where there, that's a genre though. It's like a a genre where it's kind of these absurdist jokes Mm -hmm. or even anchorman in a certain way, like that you go in there, it's bits and, and they're strung together kind of things that are awesome and amazing. But like when you sit there and look at, uh, comedies that kind of really, you know, whether it's, you know, as good as it gets or, uh, you know, terms of endearment that are like comedy dramas or, or, um, you know, or just something like horrible bosses where it's like, yeah, my boss is a fucking asshole and I want to kill him. Mm-hmm. There's a truth to admitting that. And like, there's a wish fulfillment in the fact that these guys go out and try to do it and it goes sideways and that's the fun of it and everything else like that. But there's a truth and an honesty that we, you know, we, uh, we, that makes it funny to me. Like, uh, in our show on Undateable, you know, the sitcom that I'm working on now, it's an odd couple show with dating. And so it's, you have these, you know, the two leads, the two of our you know primary characters are one's more of a player type and the other guy's more of a straight lace type, but both of them speak to their truth. And that's where we, when you're finding like, what's the scene about, or what's this, what's the next line or what is, you know, this character going to say here? I feel like it always kind of comes back to that guy has to be a hundred percent faithful to what he thinks is true. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether that's that girl likes me and not you. So that honesty and that truth is the thing that, that I think people, that's what makes it relatable, I think, a lot of times. And then uh, that becomes, uh, uh, you know, contagious in a certain way throughout the rest of it. So uh, that, that tends to be, you know, but there's other, you know, other people, uh, uh, other people have different um uh, yeah, there, other people have different kind of maybe takes on it, but I think there's definitely different styles, you know, but for me, that's kind of been a thing that if it's authentic or it feels real in a certain way, and it could be absurd, but the emotions could be real, you know, it could be really authentic, then, um, you know, that, uh, that, that could be, uh, you know, I'm talking about the British, and I'm kind of rambling, but the, uh, the British office. Uh, there's a part in when Gervais who's played this crazy hyperbolic character at the end of the Christmas special where he's had this girl, it's like one woman he's been kind of real with. And, you know, he's a waka waka foggy mm-hmm. bear type guy that always thinks he's on. There's a part of his buddy, Chris, she's a total boorish asshole, makes a comment to, to uh, David Brent. And David Brent goes, tells Chris Finch, his hero to fuck off. And it's a real moment. And you go, wow. And it buys all this kind of stuff. And you go, wow, that guy who was, doing motivational speaking things and dancing and doing all these absurd things I've seen over, you know, 
all these, these two seasons of episodes or whatever, that moment of truth bought a bunch of that back. So uh, I'm a big fan of that. I think that was, uh, the, if the emotions are, are, are real, people relate to that. Everyone kind of, uh, kind of find that in it. So, right. No. And, and I was chatting with, uh, Dan O'Shannon from, uh, Modern Family and he had a very similar answer. So that's, uh, that's Oh, cool. Answer. Yeah. That, those guys definitely, they definitely like find that kind of a thing in there. It's like, you know, I think comedy is very difficult that way is, is, you know, you try to find the thing that's relatable to everybody. Whereas drama, maybe you sometimes can go away from that, but the relatability kind of, what's the thing that we all, you know, oh man, we all love our kids and our kids, you know, we all don't want our kids to be the last one picked at kickball. So we right. all have that truth of, I'm going to do anything to make sure my kid's not the last one picked at kickball because I don't want him to have that pain. So I go to absurd lengths to make sure that that's not the case. Right. You know, that's like, that truth is the, is kind of the kernel of what is the, you know, that's drama. That's playing drama. Like, I do not want that thing. It's not, it's not intended to be funny. So, uh, that truth is, uh, is it, those guys do it so wonderfully. They're so, so goddamn good at it. So, but yeah, it's, uh, that's funny. That's funny to hear that, that, that I think that's a pretty common, might be a common answer, but right. now I want to talk just quickly about multicam versus single cam. Um, uh-huh. can you talk about writing for like a multi-camera show like Undateable versus uh-huh. writing for like a single camera sketch show like the Andy Dick show? I mean, in terms of technical differences and other considerations, uh, similarities and the differences between those two formats. Yeah, it's, well, there's definitely a big difference. Uh, you know, multi-camera, you know, obviously, uh, single camera is more filmic. You're, you know, uh, technically, you know, you're going out, you might have a five or six day, uh, production schedule. I, I worked on the show family tools that you mentioned, you know, we would shoot five days. You had two or three days on a stage and then, uh, where we were building in the stage at Disney and then one day out. So we'd go on a location for one of those to get exteriors or whatever. So you're doing five days for one script at 30, you know, 30 minute, you know, which is about 21 minutes and 34 seconds, I think is what it is on airtime. Now it's so crazy. It's like so little time. <laughs> So a lot of times with single camera, it's more of a film production kind of a thing. The um, the way you write the jokes are different. It's more, it's not hard jokes, like um, as much hard jokes. You can have irony, like, you know, uh, um, irony plays well. Like, for instance, if you watch, you know, uh, Modern Family or Parks and Rec or something, uh, Nick Offerman's character will say something crazy, and then you'll cut over and just see Amy Poehler looking at the camera for a second, for a beat, not say anything. Mm-hmm. You're not going to really do that in a multi-camera. Multi-camera, if it's like Big Bang Theory or like our show on Datable, it's more of a traditional setup punch. Ba-da-bum-boom. It's more of a, it's different, it's like music. You know, one of them is a little more long form in the single camera and one's a little more pop music. You know, it has mm-hmm. a little bit more, there's the hook and here's the chorus and here's this. There's rhythms that you expect in the multi-camera. So, um, the single camera, it's a different thing because the story you can edit and it's, you can edit and you do more visual jokes. In a single camera show, um, I'm writing one right now for HBO and it's a lot of this, you know, they call it the scene blow, the end of the blow, it's a jo- the joke of the, it ends the scene and gets you out of it. A lot of times the scene blows come from, uh, you know, in a multi-camera come from verbal jokes. You know, a guy says, yeah, that's what she said. <laughs> well, you want to laugh. Uh, you can do that in single camera, but sometimes in single camera, the luxury you have also is to go on a visual. The guy says, yeah, the last thing, uh, I'm going to let, you know, bad pitch would be, 
the last thing I would ever do is fucking tell my dad, uh, you know, tell my dad that uh, I took his car. And then you look back on him and you show dad looking at the car. You, know, you, you The camera can do jokes for you. Right. You can use the camera to kind of catch certain things if it's on, you know, in Modern Family, you could have, you know, uh, while one of them is doing the confessional to the camera, you could have, you know, cams in the background shaking his head going no, that you wouldn't get that in a multi-camera traditionally. You know, multi-cameras are shot at a three-quarter kind of a thing. So you're seeing about three-quarter, you're not doing close-ups. Mm-hmm. You're doing a lot of like from kind of the middle of the thighs up. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of, you know, in, in single camera, you're doing close-ups. So when you're thinking of the writing and how it's going to be composed, you know, a scene, if you're doing a dinner scene, a dinner scene in multi-camera could be death. It could be death in single camera too. They're tough scenes there, always. But I can, in a single camera, I can, we, the, the director can jump around on close-ups and change it up and create a rhythm so there's energy in the scene. It doesn't feel flat like ordinary people or something, you mm-hmm. know, where it's supposed to be this morose kind of a thing. It's supposed to be, you know, cuckoo and crazy and you can do singles where, you know, on a multi-camera, you're probably not going to want people sitting as much. You're going to want them on their feet or you're going to want to do, uh, or if you're going to do that, you're going to want a lot of jokes. So it's it's kind of a different it's like different forms of martial arts. This one uses more legs. This one uses more arms. This one's grappling. <laughs> it's kind of like two different forms, but they have the same, you know, self-defense kind of, uh, 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 denominator through line. Right. So, uh, uh, like for a multi-camera, it was great, you know, working with Bill Lawrence, who was, who's just, uh, you know, an absolute Titan who's had a show in the air since 1996. It's like, you know, he co-created Spin City and, created Scrubs and created, you know, Cougar Town. And so he was coming on, on Undateable. He was coming to us from a guy that had done tons of multi-camera with Spin City and stuff and Friends and things like that to doing Scrubs for 50,000 years to doing Cougar Town for 50,000, which is single camera mm-hmm. to coming back to multi-camera. And then going that rhythm was, he would, he would say was, um, was, it was, it, it was like learning how to redo something you kind of a skill set it's a different kind of it's a different kind of thinking like you're like oh i gotta do rapid fire jokes or in a single camera you don't have to do rapid fire jokes Mm -hmm. as much uh your scenes are shorter because you can have a scene that's really short it could just be like you know two people walking up and you for a multi-camera you're probably not going to do that you know seinfeld at the end would do that you'd see a lot of cuts they'd be like you know we're over here we're over here we're over here we're out in front of a you know a hot dog place or you're over here at a cab stand or whatever Traditionally, you're going to kind of, in a multicam, you're going to stay to three sets, three to four sets. You're going to do, you know, your bedroom, or your house set, or your home set. You know, in our thing, we had the apartment for the guys. We had the bar that the guy owns. You had his office, which was a smaller set. And we had a swing set off to the side that we would use for different things, like an elevator, you know, blah, blah, blah. But we tried to keep it in the two to three sets. Mm-hmm. That's in, in a single camera, you can go anywhere. You could do 5,000 sets. I mean, budget, you know. So that, that opens up your mind when you're thinking about, you know, conception of scenes and how you're going to tell the story mm-hmm. because you're limited on what you can do. So you're going, okay, well, shit, we can't go and do, you know, if I'm right at doing a multi-camera, you're not going to want to go and do a total big, you can't do an action sequence. You can't do a, oh, we're going to do a montage with a bunch of music and, you know, cover it. Whereas in a single camera, Bill would say stuff like on Scrubs, is like, you know, one thing if they were always, you know, in a certain place, they could always have, you know, you play a shin song and then like kind of go into a slow-mo and have a voiceover at the end, mm-hmm. you know, and it kind of, you can manipulate, you know, and then it, now it's, you know, it feels like, you know, sometimes 
life is a little different than you thought. And then it's playing a cool song and you're like, oh, great. You know, you can manipulate emotion a little bit more with the film, with the, with the camera, mm-hmm. uh, filmically. And then a multi-camera, you better go out on a big joke. That's the form. You know, it's like you're not going to end, uh, you're not going to end a, uh, a Kesha song with a guitar solo. <laughs> it's right. not going to happen with a Pink Floyd guitar solo. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's, they're just different kind of things, but you know, they have roots in the same thing as far as like jokes and, Whatever, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely completely different in in the way that you kind of write them, um, uh, you know, compositionally. But um, and they're tough. They both, they both have their own challenges. So, um, but multi camera is a lot of fun because it's one night you're doing stage show in front of a live audience. You see something work right there. Mm-hmm. So this great joke you've had all week on the first pass, you have up, and then you're like. Oh shit! Okay, <laughs> remember that gem that we had us weeping at 4 a.m. last night? <laughs> it's dead in the water. The audience does not like it. Uh, let's think of something new. And then you think of something on the fly, and you can try a few different things and get that immediate response from the audience. Where you know, single camera, you're hoping it works, and uh, you know you're like, oh, everybody on the stage laughs, but it might be too cool for school when you get a cut back and you go, wow, this is uh, playing a little flat, or this was funny or in conception, or it's too cute. It's not hilarious it's you know um so it's definitely have each have their own different challenges mm-hmm. um no just on a side note i had read on imdb that you played both frankenstein and satan on the andy dick show <laughs> how yeah. did that happen so and which character oh, did you enjoy hilarious. playing more well i i enjoyed uh frankenstein was, okay uh this, <laughs> this is how it went down this is actually a pretty stupid story um okay so you know, writers were working late, whatever. It's a bunch of uh, really funny writers on that show that have all gone and done really great stuff. And we were um, always playing grab ass and acting stupid. And uh, <laughs> one of the sketches I had was, um, you know, uh, there's a famous Phil Hartman sketch from SNL, Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer. One of my favorites of all time. It's a classic. Look it up. It's fun. It's, it's, he's just an unfrozen <laughs> caveman lawyer. He just mm-hmm. happens to be a caveman, but he's a lawyer and he's just a bunch of a shyster. It's just a classic thing that, uh, so anyway, I was talking about how, I don't know, we were super punchy. It's going to sound so stupid. Um, <laughs> we were super punchy. It was late. And we're laughing at everything. It's almost like, you're almost like a writer stoned, which is like, you haven't had any controlled substance, but you're like you have because your mind is just turned into absolute, you know, it's turned into garlic mashed potatoes. Mm-hmm. So we're sitting there and I was like, what if you did this song? What, what, what if you did this sketch? It was called Frankenstein Lincoln Mercury, and it was just like a ghosty cow kind of thing. And it was Frankenstein. There's no reference to the fact that he's Frankenstein. He's just talking about this that he, you know, he has glasses on a chain around his neck. It's just like a guy that this is what Frankenstein. This is what he did. He got into getting into cars and affordable Lincoln Mercury. And we were laughing, and everybody was. It was just an absurd, stupid thing. So we, I ended up writing the sketch as a joke while we're there. I'm like, I'm gonna write this real quick. And it was like two or three pages. It just was like, you know, no credit, uh, no credit, no problem. I'm Frankenstein. Like that was like the jokes. Like, <laughs> like the things we do was just stupid. It was, it was absurd. It was the fucking dumbest thing ever, right? But we were weeping. We're like, oh. <laughs> so put it in the pile. You know, you had a script. You turn it into the, to you know, you do the right scripts. So you put them in, and they would go to Andy, to Andy, and to the other EPs. And then it would go into, you know, MTV. But mostly it would go to our, you know, this side before it would go to MTV. Well, we put in all of our sketches and all our rewrites that we had done and whatever went home for the day. 
I put in Frankenstein, Lincoln, Mercury. I put it in the thing. I was like, oh, this is going to be ridiculous. We're going to laugh when Andy's going to be like, what the fuck is this? So anyway, it hops. That batch of scripts ended up going into MTV when they weren't supposed to. <laughs> they went in. So they got them at the same time. Andy got them at the same time that MTV did. So we come in the next day, and we're all early, like a Monday or something. We're all sitting in the room. They're on a like conference call or something like that. And they're going through the sketches, and all the writers are in the room. We're listening to the executives at MTV talk about you know, the sketches, and they're like, this one is great, and we think there's and they go through all this stuff, and then finally at the end, they go, the best sketch of this whole thing, and you see this is going, is Frankenstein, Lincoln Mercury is the funniest fucking sketch I have ever, and we're like, uh, we all look at each other, because we're like, wait, what happened? It's like, it's almost like the classic, like, sit, bad sitcom three's company thing of like, oh my God, the boss got the memo we didn't mean to get, right. and it got through, and MTV loved it. They were like, this is hilarious. We've got to do this. It's just hysterical. They're quoting lines, and we're looking around, and he's like, well, that's Frankenstein, Lee, and Mercury. They <laughs> 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 were like, uh, it's uh, Doyle wrote the sketch, and I was like, oh, and, I, and I was like, oh, okay, you gotta, you know, you got to stand behind what you do, but at the same time, he's like, well, it became this thing where Andy was kind of resentful of the fact that he didn't have a chance to see it before it went in. So he didn't like it. And then I, and he's like, that's just stupid. It's, and he just saw it for what it was. He's like, this is what a fucking monster has a has a cardio shit. It's just stupid. I'm like, yeah, no, it's just we were punchy. And, you know, you're kind of like, yeah, it's cool. Let it die. MTV would not let it die. They were like, we've got to do this. We're doing this sketch, and then it became a point of contention. So I'm in the middle of Andy going. It became this thing of Andy going, no, you're not telling me what to put on my show, but I don't mind the sketch either way. To MTV saying, this is the kind of stuff that this show needs to be, and it's a stupid one-off kind of sort of thing. So. And I come in, I have like a, I, one day that we're supposed to shoot, Andy finally agrees I'm going to do it. He thinks it's fine. Um, I come in and I'm I'm a little late and I remember coming in and I have like a little bit of a beard and whatever and I walk in and they go, we got to get you into makeup. And I'm like, what? You're playing Frankenstein today and he doesn't want to do it. I'm like, what? <laughs> so four hours later of having a head appliance and I mean all this stuff that he's being like a Rick Baker monster maker thing. I'm now getting my hand spray painted green and, and like airbrushed. And I had a, like a team of three makeup artists working on me. I'm Frankenstein. And anyone had nothing to do with the sketch. Like it became, you know, a line in the sand kind of a thing. So one of the other writers, John Matta, who's hilarious, a uh, good buddy of mine, he directed it. And I went out and we did this sketch at a car dealership. And it was the only sketch on the show uh, that Andy was not in. <laughs> it ended up airing as me. They're like, who's this guy? He's not Andy Dick. So I was, I was in it, and it was like a 30-second, like, you know, me doing Frankenstein, and I throw a girl down a well at the end, and I don't know, it's just stupid, and like, it was the dumbest thing. You find it online. So anyway, I was Frankenstein, so it became this thing, as we did like two and three seasons, that I was the guy that it was, a, and I, then I, what I would do is I would keep, as a joke, after a while, like Andy saw it, thought it was funny afterwards, and, you know, we had made our peace with it. But I just kept fucking around and putting in, like, Black, Creature of the Black Lagoon Public Life card, and, like, <laughs> you know, Mummy RN. Like, we were just doing everything. And then it was just finally, he would just look at you with it down his glass and go, buddy, now. <laughs> so it was like, as a joke, we just kept putting in more classic Universal Monsters doing like these mundane jobs. <laughs> so one of the, after I left, one of the other writers, Scott Collinson, a really funny guy uh, who was running the show at the end, and that writer, he had done this thing called X, it was, uh, it was called, uh, I don't know, it was like an S-Box. It was like when Xbox came out and it was like Satan, the fact that it was like controlled by Satan. And so they're like, well, we need someone to be Satan. <laughs> I'm like, Doyle, you gotta come in. You're the monster guy. I was like, oh, Christ. 
So I come in, here's another, you know, four hours of blood red makeup and horns and, and these nails that I kept scratching myself, like hardcore, like kind of things. So it became this thing of like, uh, you know, that performance background ended up kind of coming back and biting me on the ass there. So you take one for the team. So I was, I, uh, yes. Yeah, so if, if, you, if anyone needs uh, a classic monster, uh, some kind of classic monster, uh, I'm kind of the guy. <laughs> so <laughs> I've got a reel. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty stupid. Um, talking about um, Dan O'Shannon, I, I I'd spoken to him uh-huh. uh, briefly. I, I was at the uh, Writers Guild uh, Foundation Symposium on TV writing, and uh-huh. his panel was on comedy. And he once, obviously, he's a huge comedy writer. Um, yeah, but but he once wrote actually on the post nuclear war drama Jericho, and yeah, he was the only comedy writer in that room, and he he made a joke yeah. that. Every time he added sort of a funny bit, the other writers who were all drama writers would look at him like he just created fire for the first time. Oh, yeah. You know, that's totally funny. I've heard that a bunch of times. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Uh, um, but does your English lit background having, yeah. you know, sort of, you know, this encompassing lit background, does that make you that guy in a comedy room? Do you ever bring up literary references that people think that, you know? You know what? It's funny because, yeah, maybe. Okay. So <laughs> I get... <laughs> I would have a lot of weird looks because uh, um, I can make references to, you know, John Milton and I can make references mm-hmm. to the Canterbury Tales. I can make references, but my personality being kind of this, like, you know, growing up being like the guy that threw, you know, exit cars and stuff is I'm more of the dick joke. Uh, in, in the composition of the writer's room, I'm more the guy that does the blue comedy and the goofy stuff. So most of the time they're hearing me making, you know, part dick jokes and being, blue and then all of a sudden I, I would confuse them and go well that's kind of like the miller's tale where you know the guy comes out and you know he actually farts in the guy's face it's like it's been around <laughs> since the canterbury tales and they're like what the fuck what this kid what <laughs> like you're the guy who just pitched like uh you know donkey ball hat five seconds ago <laughs> now you're saying the canterbury like i it was like a it was a confusing kind of thing so yeah i i can make that reference like and kind of say well you know vonnegut said that this that and the other but they're like but that is coming, like, you know, maybe that's coming in between after I've done, you know, 15 really off-color references right. that are just, that I've gotten a bunch of eye rolls at, and they're like, who are you? So, <laughs> so uh, it sneaks in. It sneaks in. But, uh, yeah, but that, that thing that Dan was experiencing, I've heard that a lot. I mean, I've, I've worked on, uh, you know, for me personally, I've done, like, roundtables on features and things like that, and mm-hmm. uh, sometimes you kind of come in. And I think it's because comedy, you are thinking of the drama, like we were talking about the truth thing. Mm-hmm. You know, if, like, it's a, if it's a thing of, you know, uh, Modern Family, for instance, uh, of two people, you know, two parents having different views of how their kid's going to, you know, deal with something mundane, you're not going to tell those actors to act silly. You're going to tell them, Hey, this is what you really think. You know, you don't, you think that your husband's wrong and you think your, you think your wife is wrong. You're, you're going to play the drama because that's the truth. You're not going to tell them, Hey, because then it looks fake and it looks stupid because people are playing for the joke. The funnier stuff is, you know, look at a movie like sideways. It's like, there's something really funny about Paul Giamatti drinking that bottle of wine in a, fucking foam cup in a diner like a zanku chicken with the lights on mm-hmm. he's not sitting there going ha this is gonna be funny watch this he's playing it as real as possible and it's funny and pathetic and everything else like that 
So sometimes I think, like, you know, when you work on a drama, dramas are, tend to be a little bit more linear with certain things. We've already, as, as comedy artists, we're thinking of the drama, and then we're thinking how you make that funny. You know, what's the thing that would, how do you challenge that and make it funny? So, so I, there was a great, uh, great writer on our show who came on on Undateable, Rory Albanese, who really fun guy, ran the Daily Show the last like seven eight years, and he mm-hmm. came on and he was uh, working for Warner Brothers, and he came on as a consultant on our show, uh, a consulting producer. Uh, in the run, and he's just a great guy, really, really funny as hell, and just a really like to talk about a guy that's done a billion things, and um, you know, on the Daily Show, it's like crazy. It's like you're doing, you, you know, you have, you have Joe Biden's number. It's like you're the guy. <laughs> so it's funny because he was in this deal at Warner Brothers because he wanted to move over to you know sitcom and story writing kind of thing like that. So he was uh, developing something at Warner Brothers. He was consult he was consulting on our show, and then they put him on Almost Human. You know, the, the Fox sci-fi yeah, yeah. show. He's like, what the hell is... He's the only, he was the only comedy writer on the show. Same way that, like, you know, it sounds like with Dan and Jericho. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because they were like, well, we want... You know, it's a buddy cop show. It's, at the heart of it, it was, you know, Carl Urban and the, and the robot. So we want to have a, you know, like Alien Nation or one of those old classic things. You've got to have them talk like, you know, ball-busting cop partners. And Rory was in there for a day, and he said that he would just pitch things out of his butt for comedy and would get that kind of a reaction too. And he was kind of astonished by it. <laughs> and that's no like indictment of drama writers. They do stuff that uh, blow me away. Absolutely. But it is, um, I think that when, you know, uh, uh, I, if I was to go on a drama and I had a whole room of the comedy writers and they had one guy that was a drama guy, he would probably break down my story like the matrix and go, <laughs> uh, you know, it'd be crazy. So uh, it's, it's bananas. So, yeah, so but that's that's totally funny that that, that Dan had that experience because that's that sounds uh, I've heard that before. Um, awesome. It's we're starting to run short on time. I know you've got to run soon, so we've got a quick section called Rapid Fire. It's just a couple fun <laughs> questions here. Uh huh. So if you're ready, <clears throat> all right. I know you're a guitar player yourself. Um, so who's yeah. the best guitar player? Joe Satriani, Jimi Hendrix, uh-huh. Jeff Beck. Uh, Jimi Hendrix. Okay. Um, which former UCI co-ed do you think would be the most dateable and why? Uh, Playboy playmate and surreal life castmate Andrea Lowell, the Love uh-huh. Bones author Alice Siebold, or Dancing with the Stars judge Carrie Ann Inaba. And oh wow, that's a pretty. That's right. I forgot we had Alice Siebold, and we also had uh, um, we also had uh, Shaven. Michael Shaven was there too. So we've had some good uh, some good authors. Uh, I'll take Alice Siebold just for the sake of. Uh, you know, keep it in the keep it in the writer's thing. But Carrie Ann and Ab is pretty hot. I don't know the other playmate, but I assume she's a she's a scholar. She went to UCI and was in right. Exactly. <laughs> uh, um, and who would win in a game of Jenga? You, Craig Doyle, the Irish TV personality, or Craig Doyle, the Irish hurler, which is apparently part of the sport of Cornish hurling, which I did not know existed until recently. Well, that, I you know, I'll take me because uh, I know that Craig Doyle, the Irish host. Uh huh. Uh, it's pretty big uh, dude. I, I think I can take him head to head, but the yeah. other guy, I assume because he's curling, he's kind of a burly dude yeah. and doesn't have the dexterous uh, finger skills like I do from playing guitar that uh, make you uh, a Jenga, uh, make you a Jenga player. Nice. So I, 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 you know, if it comes down to one on any given Sunday, I think I could out Jenga Craig Doyle, Irish announcer. So you think <laughs> you could take Craig and Craig next? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I think I got him. <laughs> um, lastly, do you have any sort of advice for aspiring screenwriters or TV writers, or is there anything else you'd like to share? 
Uh, you know, you know the thing is, uh, yeah, it, it, keep writing, keep writing stuff, and, and no one has to see it if you don't want them to. But that, you know, but get it out of your head, and the more that you do it, the more, even for yourself, the more that you get better at it, and you get your you get your voice, and you find your voice because I think that's the thing is is the thing that people things that I read or I hear, uh, or I read uh, specs or whatever where I feel like someone they wrote what you, they think that you want to see as opposed to what they want to tell you, you know. So the, it's like that finding the voice. I go, wow, that's a really great voice, and you read the script, you're like, well, the script's a mess, but definitely point of view. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? If it's like, you know, they, you hear Quentin Tarantino or Diablo Cody, it's like, you know their voice. Like, that's a voice. It's like, finding that thing in comedy is very specific. And so that's one thing. And the other thing is find a community. You can't do this alone. You know, in the same way that I, you know, it's a, it's an ironic thing because it's a solitary thing. You write or you write with a partner or whatever. But you can't do it alone in the sense that, like, you need a community of people. Um, you know, for me, my break came with a friend who had a job. You, your, your luck becomes their luck, you know, mm-hmm. because or their luck becomes your luck. You know, he got a job at this, with this big producer at Fox. So he had the audience to send my script out and it being at the top of a pile because of by association of who he was working with. So that got me my break. So those breaks come and those opportunities come uh from community. Uh, a lot of times, you know, if you're, you know, in a writer's group or, you have a buddy who's a writer's assistant on a show and then maybe your script can get to his boss in a certain way. It's really, you know, the contests and all the great things that are online and these opportunities are great and stuff like that. But almost to a person that I know is come from um, that their break has come from an opportunity that generated from uh, the community that they kept uh, as writers. So find that, you know, and um, so, and just keep writing, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's that simple really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, yeah. but, uh, it's, uh, it's not easy, but it's, you know, there's more opportunity out there now. It's like, it's crazy with stand up now. It's so much of these guys, you know, with YouTube and Vine and whatever. It's like, you know, you and Twitter, it's like, you can have a presence out there, yeah. um, online, you know, you can have a podcast, you can have these things and you can get your voice out there. So there's more opportunities that way. Right. Um, so just use them, you know, use them. You never know which way it's going to come. Absolutely. You know? So. Absolutely. Um, but, who would have uh, thought that uh, shit my dad says would go from a Twitter to a TV show? Granted, it did well, not. Well, I know Justin Halpern was yeah. worked on another show. Greatest guy in the world. Incredibly talented. Did Surviving Jack this year, which I think is the most underrated show on TV this year that didn't get as great of a chance as it deserved. Mm-hmm. Uh, amazing dude. And he wrote what it is. He wrote his truth. He wrote, that's yeah. what his dad really is. Mm-hmm. So it's like he found the venue that used that in a certain way. So, you know, Undateable was based on a, a, like a coffee table book or something. It was like a bunch of dudes, you know, dateable dudes. It was, you right. know, the ideas come from weird things. Just get it out. You know, don't, you know, uh, you know, Bill Lawrence would say something great. It's like content is kick. Mm-hmm. If you're not generating content, you're, there's no way you're going to, you're, you're going to get anywhere. Right. Absolutely. Get out there and generate the content because we don't know how it's going to get to you. If it's on, you know, your mobile device or the traditional broadcast network or in a theater or whatever it is, but we know they need that, mm-hmm. you know, it's like they're building the railroad that way. So why not, make cars <laughs> right you know make uh tra- train cars so uh you gotta do it so right uh, it's the only way to kind of uh you know bolster yourself against the, the uh the, you know the capricious nature of the way that uh big media is going now so the only way to do it they're still going to need content right and uh and more you know, and more so just, absolutely like in a, in a crazy way yeah so um you know just make it right you know? so worst that could happen they say no it's like 
all right. And if they call you and tell you you suck and it's terrible, then all right. <laughs> then you try again and move on to the next one. Exactly, right. Like, what's going to happen? Like, really, think about it. What's going to happen? And maybe that gets you over the procrastination. I'm going to be I'm gonna be playing this back for myself so I can finish <laughs> what I have to do today because yeah. I'm going to probably uh, – <laughs> as soon as I hang up this phone call, I know the procrastination monster will come back and fucking kill me. <laughs> yeah, you did that interview. That's great. All right, cool. Let's go take a six-hour lunch. Right. <laughs> go see Planet of the Apes. Right. You deserved it. You worked today. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, thanks oh, for coming man. on the show, Craig. I really appreciate it. Oh, Kevin, this was a lot of fun. I, I really, really appreciate it, man. Thank you yeah. so much. And special Hope thanks. I didn't to... over talk. No, no. <laughs> you had some great, great insights. So um, I think it's it was fantastic. Um, but cool. I would just want to thank Adam Colbrenner for uh, hook, you know, for the hookup. Adam's the man. He is the man. Uh, he's he's the greatest and uh, yeah. uh, one of my best friends. And and I mean, just that uh, I love the guy to death. That's another thing. If you want like someone else. Uh, I got lucky enough to find my community is Adam too. He and I kind of started together at the same time, you know, our success. So we yeah. were able to kind of rise together at the same time. And, it, and it, that's, it, you know, again, it's another point of community. Adam's a perfect example of that, but the best guy ever. Absolutely. And super smart. Oh God. Crazy smart. Um, and you can follow Craig on Twitter at the Craig Doyle, not the Irish TV personality one, but the Craig <laughs> Doyle. And visit him online at craigdoyleisevler.tumblr.com. Um, and we know he's evil because he played Satan. And he... Yeah, I played Satan. Right. Uh, Frankenstein might be a little misunderstood evil. <laughs> Let's be honest. That's true. That's true. He, the guy has a, the guy's trying to make a fucking living. You know, he's, he's got a car dealership. Yeah, it's a lot of pressure. He's got a sedan. Yeah, a lot of pressure. got quotas to meet. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. <laughs> I mean, God, corporate comes in. <laughs> um... <laughs> <laughs> and if you have questions about the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. There's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. Um, and thanks for listening.